0: Reading. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be preaching. He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, "May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring something strange, some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these, thing, these things mean." Now all the Athenians for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead some mocked but others said we will hear you again about this so Paul went out from their midst but some men joined them joined him and believed among whom were Dionysus the Areopagus Ariopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him.
1: Lord, we come to you this morning, Lord, we ask for your help. Lord, we encounter, Lord, just an incredible passage like this, Lord, really one of the peaks in the book of Acts, and yet at the same time, Lord, we can feel very unworthy to even come to a text like this. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us not only to see what the text is saying, but what Luke is seeking to um, drill into us who are the readers of this book so that we can continue to be the kind of people you want us to be and so that we can be responsible and confident and certain about how we are to take the gospel message to the end of the earth. And so, Lord, what we know not would you teach us Lord, what we are not, would you make us? And Lord, what we have not, would you give us? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I read a story recently about a man by the name of Dion. And Dion woke up much like he did every morning. a Quick bath, change of clothes, a healthy breakfast of bread, and fruit see dion was a man of the world trained in the best schools and universities he came from a wealthy family he was greatly respected among his peers and he carried a good amount of influence in society well this day began like any other he left home he hailed a taxi and he went to work see he was a member of the city council and when he would get to work, many times the council would be listening to the city's issues and problems, and they would have to make decisions together, and sometimes it could get really boring, but at other times it could be kind of exciting, depending on what the topic was. Much of the time, there was squabbling about buildings and, and, and monuments and roadways and properties and things like that. Other times, however, they got to hear evidence for individuals who were accused of breaking the law, robbing people and businesses. Even those who had potentially committed murder. And those were often the the, the difficult times in this role that he had. But he was committed to his responsibility to serve the people of his city and if he had to make a decision to make it with integrity. And on this day, however, after some discussion about the city having to put limits on the price of oil and sanctions on those who were selling fruit at a higher price, a man was introduced having been speaking with many others in the city center marketplace. A man who seemed to be speaking about a new religion. This man was brought before the city council primarily because they were the guardians of both the religion and the tradition of their city. And Dion sat there and groaned, thinking to himself, aren't there already enough religions and places of worship in the city? Do we really need to add another one? And where would we put their temple or their shrine? Well, Dion listened, and by the end of the day, he would leave his place of work, the city council, a changed man. He was still an Athenian, a member of the Areopagus, but he was now also the citizen of heaven, having repented of his sins and believed in the resurrection, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was Dionysius, the Areopagite, a child of God, and a follower of the Apostle Paul's new way. He was now a Christian one of the first converts in this central city of Athens. And as he left that day, although he heard people mocking and scoffing at the things that had been said, although some left intrigued, he, along with others, left that day in silence, tearful and contemplating what had happened that day. This was the beginning of the church in Athens. How could this take place? See, Dr. Luke wants us to see something. He wants us to see the radical impact of the simple gospel in scary places. What if you were asked to speak about the gospel to a group of LGBTQ teens at the public school, what would you say? What if you were invited to present the gospel to a comparative religion class at Cal State East Bay or the University of Berkeley or Davis or Stanford? What would you say? What would you think? What if you were Asked to give testimony of your faith in the context of a courtroom session because someone's life or even the church was at stake. What if you were running for a local political office and the, the local Muslim community asked you to speak and talk about your faith? What would you say? What if you were called before the state later and given 15 minutes, which is a long time, to declare the distinctions of Christianity. What would you say? What would you fear? Last week, if you remember, looking at the spread of the gospel in the cities of Thessalonica and Berea, we determined that God builds his church through the ministry of the word. That hasn't changed. And today, Luke wants us to see that the word of God proclaimed in any and every context will bear fruit. And though this section of Acts seems repetitive, because he's going to go into city after city after city, and he's going to do the same thing, go into the synagogues, he's going to reason with them in the synagogues, and the gospel is going to spread, Luke is driving home something we all need to hear, that the simple gospel declared by an ordinary Christian is powerful and effective in every and any context. Let me say that again. The simple gospel, for it is simple, is declared or declared by an ordinary Christian, that's all of us in this room, is powerful and effective in every and any context. I wonder if we still believe that. I wonder if we think, well, it's not going to work in this context that I'm in. Can you imagine Paul on this day speaking where he's at? Probably the largest group of listeners, the smartest group of listeners, the most philosophical group of listeners, wondering, will the gospel take root? You better believe it will. Why? Because God has already said, this is my testimony. Go and spread it to the end of the earth. See, at the beginning of Acts, there were 12 simple and weak disciples of Jesus Christ who were unleashed on that known world. And they went all over the place. And what did they do? They shared the good news of Jesus Christ. And people complained everywhere that they were turning the world upside down. It wasn't that they were turning the world upside down. It was the centrality of the gospel message that was turning the world upside down. Now, friends, what do you need if you're going to go as an uneducated fisherman into the Jewish council in Jerusalem? What do you have to have in your backpack? What's the tool that you need to bring with you? Not your smarts, not your position, not your style, certainly not your clothing, not your physical physique. Friends, what you need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do you need in the commercial center, Ephesus? What do you need in the university campus, Athens? What do you need in the corridors of power, Rome? What do you need in the marketplace or the prison officer, Philippi? What do you need in the brothel, Corinth? What do you need in the coven, Ephesus? You just need the simple gospel declared by an ordinary Christian, and God will do the rest. So what do you need? on your school campus or in your business break room? What do you need at your homeschool co-op or your softball or soccer practices? What do you need when your Muslim or Mormon neighbor asks you about your faith? What do you say to the environmentalist, the Uber driver, the walking companion, the mom who you met at the park who's not a believer? What do you need? What do you say? It's not really that complicated, friend. It is the good news of the gospel. And what we're going to see in this passage is this is what Paul does. Now, friends, when we have the opportunity to share the gospel in scary situations, and I think most of us would say every gospel encounter is a scary situation, right? But when we have the opportunity to share the gospel in scary situations, how do we typically respond? First of all, I think many times we look for exits, right? We're fearful, we feel ill-equipped, and so we look for a way out. Well, how about them warriors? (laughs) They're doing great this year, you know? Oh, isn't the weather so nice? I love living here in the Bay Area. Sorry, uh, excuse me, I have to make an appointment, you know. We look for ways out of the conversations, we just feel like we don't have the tools. Or we call on the experts. We say something like, I'm not sure how to answer that question. Why don't you talk with my pastor? Thank you very much. Or third, we seek out the evangelist. And by by that, I don't mean a key person in the church. By that, I mean yourself. Because you are an evangelist. That's what God has called you to. He's called every believer to be an evangelist. We all have the resources we need in the Bible to present Christ as the one who will meet their ultimate need. Now, friends, we're all called to be evangelists. Yes, there are some who have the spiritual gift of evangelism, but all Christians are called to evangelize, but we're often gripped by the fear of men, aren't we? We're afraid of rejection and being made fun of. Who enjoys that? We're afraid of clever arguments and having words twisted. But if we look at the end of our text today, we realize that many will definitely mock and scorn the gospel. (laughs) They will. Some will be somewhat interested. Maybe I'll hear you again. But there will be some who will be the recipients of new life, all because God's work through you by means of the proclamation of his word. See, if you look at the the end result here, there's not like a ton of people. There's a good amount of people. There's not a ton of people. In today's terms, Paul's missionary endeavor here has meager results. At least that's what they would say. I think this is good results. If you share the gospel to a number of people and you have one person that comes to faith, that's a good result, friend. You don't measure gospel results by how many. You just say this is faith. I'm being faithful, and God's going to do the rest. Now let's just think about the structure of our passage. It's simple. These are not your your, your headings, but this is the structure of the text. We have the setting, we have the sermon, we have the significance. So the setting is is what led up to the sermon. The sermon then is is what Paul says in his sermon. Then we have the significance, which really is the response to his sermon. But I want you to know from the outset, the gospel emphasis in this passage is on the resurrection. And I want you to notice the three different ways in these sections that the resurrection is used. If you see in verse 18, we have in the setting here, it says this. And some said, what does this babbler say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. In his sermon, at the end of his sermon, he's driving at home. He says, because he, that's the father, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Again, the resurrection. And then the very next verse in the significance section, now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again. So the gospel centrality here is flowing through the resurrection. Now, I want you to notice that in our text, that Paul doesn't begin with Christ and the resurrection. He begins by telling the simple story of who God is, and then ends up telling about what God has done in the gospel, which is the resurrection. And friends, it's a simple gospel, and we can declare it. It is, uh, we are weak and ordinary Christians, but we're not experts by any means, but we can be faithful to share the simple gospel, but God is powerful to work through us, so It's interesting that this theme has come up this morning. We didn't orchestrate it. God does these things. But I want to appeal to you this morning to trust that as a follower of Christ, you can be faithful to God with his gospel in any and every place. You can. You, if you're a Christian, you are tooled. Now, can we grow in that? Absolutely. But we're talking about the simple gospel here. So, therefore, I want to encourage you, first of all, to trust in the providence of God. Secondly, to trust in the preaching or the proclamation of God's word. That happens in a sermon. It happens one-on-one. can happen in a variety of different ways. And third, to trust in the power of the gospel. So, first of all, trust in the providence of God. Do you trust that God is at work orchestrating the affairs of man, that God is at work in every place, even in the scary places. Now, just think about this. Likely, Paul is on this missionary journey. He has in his mind a path and a plan that he wants to accomplish, which probably had Athens in mind, but not the way it's happened. He didn't probably go into Thessalonica and say, you know what, I hope that we're going to get run out of town by a bunch of Jews. No. God orchestrated opposition. The opposition was the means by which he then had to leave Thessalonica, and he went down to Berea, and while he was in Berea, having preach the gospel, and sharing and building up the people there. Those Jews come from Thessalonica, and now he's moved out of Berea. The believers help him to get to Athens ultimately, and he's in Athens. Silas and Timothy remain, and while he's in Athens, he gives instructions for them to come to him in Athens as soon as possible. Clearly, friends, Paul is in Athens by God's design. God, this is God's timing, and this is God's new place of ministry for Paul. So as we work through these verses, I want you to see how God's providence is at work. Let's look at these verses, verses 16 through 20, really by answering four questions. First of all, what does Paul see in Athens? We find that there in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So in the providence of God, when Paul comes into the city of Athens, he sees that the city is full of idols. Now, you don't have to remember, well, it's good for us to remember, I should say, that Athens was a magnificent city. It's one of those places you go to, even today, and you, you take a camera with you because there's all sorts of beautiful structures Beautiful buildings, lovely architecture, full of culture, full of magnificent art. I'm sure in this day it was magnificent. It would have been stunning. The Greek pantheon would have uh, been there, and most of the other impressive buildings and temples and shrines would have been there. Although it was, you know, the heyday of Athens had passed, it was still considered to be the cultural and intellectual center of the Roman Empire. But that's not what catches Paul's eye. What catches his eye is that the city is full of idols. And if the city is full of idols, then what? It's full of idolatry. One of the ancients has said, in Athens, it's easier to find a god than a man. Because there were so many idols In the city. Well, what did Paul see then? What did Paul feel in Athens? As he saw these idols in his spirit, he is provoked, he's grieved, he's distressed. This Greek word is used in the Septuagint to describe God's response to what he was seeing happening with the people of Israel when they were celebrating and worshiping the golden calf. So it's not just that he's a little perturbed, he's infuriated. His commitment to the one true God of the Bible drove him to anger at man's rebellion against God. Now, certainly it was ignorant anger, but it was still anger. Is that what you notice when you enter a city? Are you in awe of the magnificence of that city? Are you captivated by the big buildings, the beautiful architecture, or the amazing public transportation? are you taken aback by the rampant unbelief friends are you provoked by the rampant display of sin all over the place what did paul see what did he feel third what did he do Again, in the province of God, when Paul sees that the city is full of idols and he is provoked in his spirit, he does two things. There's two words that describe what he does. First of all, we're told that he reasoned. Where did he reason? Well, he reasoned in the synagogue. But not only that, he reasoned in the synagogue on the Sabbath, but then every other day he's reasoning where? In the marketplace. And while he's reasoning in the marketplace, He is able to actually encounter some philosophers, and there we're told that he conversed with them, with the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. Now, we can describe what Epicureanism is is, and Stoicism is. Epicureanism, basically, they're materialists. They're saying, enjoy life now. Get what you can now. Live like there's no tomorrow. If I'm going to be judged, I might as well... Enjoy life to the fullest now before that judgment is realized. Do we see that in our culture today? Absolutely. Just live life now. What about Stoics? Well, they're a little bit more tight, right? God has dictated the affairs of man, so we ought to accept our destiny. So grin and bear it because it is what it is. You know, if I'm going to die, it's going to happen, Right? Just embrace and endure life's tragedies and pains. Friends, although we say, well, here there's philosophers and Stoics and Epicureans. Look, this is, this is the world. <laughs> this is the thinking of the culture that's reflected here with these, these philosophers. We look at our society. It has similar ideas and philosophies. And I know we can be overwhelmed with that. Like, oh, what can we say? You say the very same thing that the Apostle Paul is saying repeatedly over and over again. So friends, we see that he goes in and he reasons, he, he, he is conversing with them. The idea of conversing, by the way, simply means to be thrown together with. So you're, you're thrown together and you're having this dialogue and discussion. Well, how did the people respond is the next question. Paul reasoned and conversed with these philosophers and he encountered three responses, insults, What does this babbler have to say? The idea there is that he's picking bits from here and bits from here and bits from here and bits from there. There's confusion. He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. In other words, they hadn't heard this before. This is news to them. This is like, what is going on? This sounds really, really strange. But ultimately, they invite him to say some more. Come to the Areopagus. We want to hear more. And friends, in the providence of God, Reasoning and dialoguing has led to curiosity, has led to an invitation. I don't know that Paul had thought that morning that when he got up, that as he was in the marketplace, he was going to end up in the Areopagus. But that's all part of God's providence. They're saying, we want to know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. So we want to know what these strange things mean. So there He goes. My friends, do you see how God's providence is at work? It began, you might want to say locally in Thessalonica and Berea, then to Athens. Now, once he's in Athens, he's provoked by the idols that he sees. And so he does what he normally does, what his custom is, going into the synagogue, reasoning from the scriptures and sharing the gospel, and then also in the marketplace, and he ends up in the Areopagus. That's how God works, friends. He works in the lives of his children, the ordinary, regular lives of his children to put us in place where we have opportunities to testify. Let me give you a few examples. When you're sitting in the hospital waiting for your child to get a test or a procedure, and you get to talking with others in the waiting room Who are doing the same thing, and before long, your shared trial is giving you an opportunity to point to Christ. That's the providence of God. You didn't orchestrate that, God orchestrated that. When a parent stays after soccer practice to talk with you or about uh, the struggles that they're facing in their family, and they ask for advice. And so for the next 20 minutes, you're able to encourage them in their struggle by pointing them to the one who has sustained you through the years when you have had to face similar struggles. That's the providence of God. Or when you go to play a round of golf and you're, you're by yourself and so you're paired up with a, another, another man and you find out as you're playing that this man is there playing golf because his wife is in the hospital just about ready to die. And so you ask some more questions, and you, 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 you say, hey, you know, can I pray with you? And he's a practicing Hindu, but he is appreciating any kind of prayer, and so you pray with him, and then you keep talking about God and the things of God and who God is. Friends, that's all God's providence. Friends, do we truly believe in God's providence? that he is at work orchestrating the affairs of our lives to accomplish his purposes through us. If we do, then we will approach each day with the expectation of gospel moments. We'll approach each day praying that God would give us freedom to declare his good news as those opportunities come. Friends, I want to encourage you to trust in the providence of God. Secondly, I want to encourage you to trust in the preaching of God's Word. See, God is at work through the simplicity of His Word. Now, when I say preaching, we certainly see Paul here preaching in the Areopagus. But I also want to kind of bring it down to the level of all of us. This is simply a gospel conversation. It can be in front of a group of people it can be you know with a, just a number of people it could be with a family it could be with neighbors it could also be one on one but it's an opportunity for you then to declare his goodness so trust in the proclamation of God's word as it confronts as it exposes and it, as it convicts men of sin so paul having testified in the marketplaces now led into the areopagus and he preaches and it's a model sermon friends it teaches us how to speak to the skeptic and notice what paul does and we're going to work through three things they're not going to be on the screen yet but i'll just give them to you ahead of time here first of all he makes a connection with his audience secondly he explains who god is and third he declares what god says so let's walk through that together because although paul is an expert you might want to say he's educated by Gamaliel, he was taught by jesus himself what he says is not that complicated it's the simple gospel. why? because it's the same message that he's preaching over and over and over again. you don't change the gospel message because of the place that you're going. you're always getting to that message and you might kind of you know lead from a different place but you're getting to that gospel message why because that's the issue. So Paul introduces a sermon by making Connect a connection with his audience. Now, let's just think through this here. Paul, as he has come in, not only has he been observant uh, of you know, the idols, but he's also been observant of the people. He's looking, He's putting it all together, and so what he does is he finds common ground and he establishes a bridge. How does he do that? Common ground? You are very religious, is what he says. Well, you don't say. The city's full of idols. That's a pretty... You know, it's a foregone conclusion, but it is a means by which to create a common ground. Today, we wouldn't so much say religious as we would say you're spiritual. You care about spiritual things. And he's saying, I, I see that you care about those spiritual things. That's, that's good. I'm glad that you care about those, those spiritual things. And then he builds this bridge. You have an altar to the unknown God. And this is the way in. He's saying, I have this altar to an unknown God. I'm going to tell you who this unknown God is, right? Now, presumably, it was an altar to a God that they didn't know. It could have been kind of like, well, we've tried to cover all of our bases here, but there may be a God that we don't have, so we're going to have this unknown God to make sure that we're worshiping him too, right? So it's very polytheistic. So Paul skillfully takes something from their culture and belief system and uses it as a means to get to talking about God. You say, well, see, I could never do that. Yes, you can. Here's a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. Someone's going through a trial. Hey, I see you're going through a really hard time and that you're suffering. I'm so sorry. I, I just I can't imagine what you're going through. But I do know that suffering and trials are really hard. Now, I've been through some trials myself, maybe not anywhere near in comparison to you, but I've learned over and over again that I need to lean on the God of the Bible. He knows your suffering. He knows your heartache. He cares about what you're going through. Now, all I'm trying to show you there is I'm, I'm moving from, here's, the, here's their struggle and getting to God. You don't want to be cheesy and quick about it. You genuinely want to communicate these things. I do care. I care about your suffering. I care about your struggle, but but I've learned that I found help in the God of the Bible. Secondly, someone who's passionate about justice and we have a lot of that going on today. I see that you're really concerned about justice. That's admirable. <laughs> No one wants to live in a world where there is no justice. All right? And both of you now are in agreement. <laughs> Do you know that a key attribute of the God of the Bible is justice? He hates it when people are taken advantage, He hates it when injustice is prevalent in the world. And He promises that justice will take place. Maybe not in your lifetime but no man can sin against God and get away with it. He will be held accountable. All I'm doing is just very simply moving from what they value to say, you know what, let's look at God. This is his character, and this is what he thinks. And we can all learn to kind of look at these ways to bridge in and ultimately point to the God of the Bible. And friends, when we make connections like this, we show that we are paying attention to them. We're showing them that we care. Now back to Paul and these religious Athenians. His sermon will expose as he speaks three effects of the emptiness of religion. And this is just worth noting here because religion for many people is something that they think is the means by which they're going to be appeasing God. But religion, first of all, diminishes God. Why? Why? Because it's idolatry. It puts God, it puts God, excuse me, here. I'm trying to click here. All right, here you go. It puts God into an idol. It puts God into a temple. And he says, God doesn't dwell in temples with hands. God is not served by human hands. In other words, God doesn't need your help. God is not an object made with gold or silver or stone. Religion diminishes God. Secondly, religion distances God. This is from idolatry now to ignorance, that God is cold, that he is too far away. He's just disconnected. He's aloof. You worship how? In ignorance, he said. And God, he says, overlooks these time of ignorance. So this ignorance is a word to describe just their, their whole view of God. They're so far removed from him, they do not know him. He says, you grope for God. Third, religion displaces God. And the word there is I. Religion is no longer focusing on God. It's really focusing on me. I am serving God as if he needed anything. An image formed by the art and thought of man. Friends, rather than seek to worship God who created man in his image, religion ultimately rejects God and creates gods in man's image. So Paul, along his discussion, is gonna just, he's going to point out these flaws in the thinking of these people. Right? And that's just going to naturally flow out as he talks about the gospel. So he's making these connections. And Friends, you can do this. you just got to start thinking in this way. How do you want to draw them in? You can say, well, yeah, you have to be really skillful to do this. Well, you, you need to think. So making a connection. Next thing he does is he explains who God is. So who is this God that I'm talking about? Who is the God who speaks about Jesus and the resurrection? Well, he's your unknown God. Now let me tell you about him. Now Paul unpacks a picture of the one true God. And I want you to notice its simplicity and that he moves from the general to the specific. First of all, he is the creator. He is the creator. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. He is the creator. Unlike your many gods who are subject to and limited to creation, the true God created the world and everything in it. And unlike your many gods who live in temples and shrines, God, the God that I'm talking to you about is not confined to those places. These temples made by men. He's the creator. He is also the sustainer. He is actively involved with his creation, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The world that God has created is the world that God sustains. The reason the molecules are holding together is because God holds them together. And this God that I'm presenting to you you is is not in need of any help from man because he is self-sustaining, he is self-sufficient, and subsequently he is the one who sustains man's life and his breath and everything. Creator, sustainer, he is the orchestrator. What are we told in verse 26? And he made from one man, that's Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined... Uh, allotted periods, and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You understand what he's saying there? Every nation that is on the face of this earth today has started out with Adam. And God has been the one who's been orchestrating all those different nations. He rises them up and he puts them down. He lets them expand their borders and he is the one who shrinks their borders. And as we gather together this morning, we all have history, we all have ethnic roots, we all have um, countries that we're from, and we're all part of this area. So, you know, I'm from, uh, you know, my, my mom is Swedish, my father's British. One of the things I found out uh, this, past, this past year, my, my kids did for, for Christmas was Ancestry.com. I've always known that um, I have a British heritage, but what I didn't realize, I knew my parents were both born and raised in India, but I didn't realize that my dad's father, my, my dad's side, that the generations go back like to the early 1800s in India, not in England. The point is we, we all have different ethnic origins. We have, all have different places that we're from. God is the one that arranged that. The reason why our country is called the United States of America isn't because we had a group of men that got together and wrote a constitution. Behind all that is a God who's working the affairs of man. And he's, he's done that in Russia, he's done that in Ukraine, he's done that in all different places, friends. God is the one who's orchestrating that. Not only is he the creator, the sustainer, the orchestrator, he is also the revealer. So this God who creates, sustains, and orchestrates now can be known. Right, he has revealed himself if we're willing to look for him. Right? He is an approachable God what verse 27 says, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. He is a personal God, not an impersonal idol, yet he is actually not far from us. And then he begins to quote two uh, poets, Epimenides and Eratus, to make his point. In him we live, uh, live and move and have our being. God is a personal God. We are his offspring, not in a redeemed sense, but in the fact that uh, that God is the one who created us and we have received life and breath from him. And see, what Paul is doing here is making a further connection by drawing lines of similarity from the Athenian culture. And we might do the same thing by quoting songs or Movies, TV shows, or even books. I mean, here's a few, and, I, and it depends on what you're talking about and how you're, how you're drawing out the, the, the gospel connection. But, you know, it was, the, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That's from Dickens. Don't worry. Be happy. You guys remember that. Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Friends, these are, these are statements that you can, you can lean on and you can draw from that are contemporary, but also are going to give you further opportunity to reinforce what Scripture says. Let it go. Let it go. I, I, you know, if you're thinking about the Lord's return, I, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be back. Right, so you just got to stop and you got to think. And probably this is how we do it when we're having conversations with people. You know, There is some contemporary statement or thing that might reinforce what it is I am saying to give a somewhat understanding of, of who God is and what he is about. Friends, Paul is declaring the simplicity of God, who is the one God who created the world. Do you believe that? Right? He sustains the world. Do you believe that? He, he also orchestrates his creation. Do you believe that? Now, these are big, simple, overarching themes. This is You don't have to be a rocket scientist to believe this. You don't have to be a Bible expert to know that God creates, sustains, and orchestrates his creation. You don't have to be a, have a PhD to know that God is both an approachable and a personal God. No, you simply have to know the basics of the Christian faith. Now, I just think that sometimes that we have... We, in a sense, kicked the can out of the way to say, you know, we we can't share the gospel as effectively as we used to. No, you can't. The reality is more people may be rejecting the gospel, but the gospel hasn't changed. And now we move to making connections, who is God, to what does God say? Notice what God says. Having established who God is, Paul now goes on to communicate what God says. And he also reveals that this God is both judge and reconciler. Now friends, Paul goes on to say to his hearers, since the resurrection is true, then judgment is a certainty. And three certainties about the judgment now are unpacked for him. This is where he's driving it home. He began general and he's now driving home now to a more specific purpose. This is where he's getting, might want to say, to the heart of the gospel, right? God has appointed, first of all, a certain day. A certain day. It's a fixed day when he will judge the world. A court date has been set in heaven. He has a certain day when he will judge the world. You can count on it. He said it. It's going to happen. God has been patient. He's been long-suffering, Scripture says. But the day of reckoning would come. You know, sometimes uh, every year, I think most of us get that dreaded postcard in the mail that says, this is your summons for jury duty in Alameda County. And when you receive it, you all respond the same way. It's hard to spell, but it sounds like this. Right? I can't believe it, this is not a good time. How can I get out of it, right? And here are some of the frequently asked questions about jury duty. How did my name get selected for jury duty? How may I be excused from jury duty? May I postpone my jury service to a convenient time? You might think that's more convenient, but it's not gonna be more convenient, trust me, right? What happens if I'm late? Can I send my spouse in my place? And friends, that's just for jury duty. But God isn't calling you for jury duty, but to stand trial in his presence. Every name gets selected for judgment. You can't be excused from judgment. You can't postpone your judgment to a more convenient time. You won't be late for judgment. And you can't send your spouse in your place. Friends, the only way that you can get out of judgment is to have Jesus stand in for you as your substitute. And in order for that to be true, you must be born again. You see how he's moving here? There's a certain day. Judgment is coming. This is what this God says. Secondly, there's a certain Standard. There's a certain standard. He will judge the world. How? In righteousness. In other words, God will judge men in comparison to his righteousness. If God judges me against all the people around me, then I think I'm pretty good. I don't beat children. I'm faithful to my wife. I pay my taxes. Hey, we're all sinners. We all make mistakes. But friends, God doesn't Judge on a curve. The standard by which he is going to judge me is his own holiness, his glory, his righteousness, not my own. No matter how much you complain to him. And compared to that, I will come up short. I will miss the mark, scripture says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you measure me by the Ten Commandments, I will fall flat on my face. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So God's holiness, his righteousness, is the standard by which we are judged. But then, not only is there a certain day and a certain standard, there's also a certain man. See, we usually think of God being the judge on that day, don't we? We don't think of it being a man who is going to judge, but the final judge will be both God and man. Man with a capital M. His name is Jesus. Turn, if you would, to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. This is so important for us to see because not only does our world not get this, much of the church doesn't get this. And it's important for us to see this. John chapter 5, verse 22. It's not going to be up on the PowerPoint. Jesus is speaking here. He says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to who? The Son. (laughs) Let that sink in. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him... uh, who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so, has, uh, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him, that's the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man do you understand that gentle jesus meek and mild will be the judge of every man and eternal life and death will be his sentence so since the resurrection is true and judgment is a certainty there needs to be a right response to this god And friends, Paul's gospel is simple. God created, God sustains, God orchestrates, God reveals, but he reveals that there's going to be a day, there's going to be a standard, there's going to be a man, and so you must repent. Now, friends, we know this. This This is gospel. This is gospel 101. See, Paul is a smart man, isn't he? He's a learned man, but he doesn't bring wisdom and philosophy and techniques into his sharing of the gospel. He simply unpacks the scriptures to present the truth about who this God is and what he has done in his son, Jesus Christ. So we trust in the providence of God. We trust in the preaching and the proclamation of his word and then third, we trust in the power of the gospel. God is at work drawing people to himself. We don't see how God is doing that, but we know that he is. We scatter the seed, and God is the one who prepares the heart for the seed so that that seed can germinate and, and, and life begins. So how did the people respond to the sermon? in much the same way that they respond to the biblical Christ-centered sermons or gospel discussions today. First of all, there's mocking unbelief. Mocking unbelief. And mocking unbelief here with every, uh, with with all the facts and the proofs and the evidence and the clarity, there will always be those who will not believe. And quite frankly, that will be the majority. Are we okay with that? (laughs) See, in in our American Christian culture and thinking, it's always successful when we have more and there's a mass of people that respond. Quite frankly, I'm more suspicious. What did we miss? How have we manipulated? See, they're often blinded by their belief systems. They're not willing to change the pursuit of their sinful pleasures and anyone and anything that gets in the way of that is mocked and ridiculed and scorned. Sadly, much of this attitude is present in American culture as well as in the church in America. So if we love our sin, what do we do? We create a God, little g, that doesn't care about our sin and still call it Christianity. It's another form of mocking unbelief. Secondly, there's thoughtful consideration. There certainly were some people here that said, hey, you know what? We want to listen to you again. And some people will respond that way. And that's encouraging. And sometimes people, you know, this this gospel presentation is a process. It's not just a moment. And some of you are are evidence of that. It's taking you time. You, You explore the different religions. You've gone down different paths. and You finally come to the place where you're like, this is true. And I humble myself before the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, it's possible that you have been, in a sense, kicking the can of responding by faith to the gospel for a long time. You know the facts. You know the scriptures talk about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. You know that Jesus refers to that himself. And he says, this is why I've come. You know the facts. But you've chosen just to ignore that, procrastinate it even. The Bible says, friends, today is the day of salvation. You don't know what tomorrow is holds for you. And then there's genuine faith. Isn't that beautiful? I know I began with the story about Dion, right? But can you imagine getting up In the world in which you live, in the thinking in which you've become accustomed to, this is the direction you're going. And on that day, everything seems normal as you're getting out to go into life and do the things that you're responsible to do. But there's a message from one man that just hits you square in your heart and you are radically changed. This is what happens when the gospel goes forward. This is what happens when ordinary Christians... Share the simple gospel and trust that God is going to work in and through it. Next, we see there's a woman, Damaris. Now, obviously, what, what Luke is doing here is he's, he's listing names that would be clearly understood in that context. Oh, yeah, Damaris, we know her. We know Dionysius. We know him. Finally, there are many others. And friends, for those who believe in the gospel, who repent of their sins and embrace Jesus and their resurrection, there is a new and profound hope. They now have a new life, eternal life. They now have a new family, the church, the body of Christ. They now have a new and certain future, heaven. They have a new... Outlook on life, joy in the midst of trouble. They have a new comforter of the Holy Spirit who is with them. They have a new purpose to glorify God in all they do rather than self. They now have the living, breathing word of God guiding them. And they now have a spiritual pursuit to be like Christ. And we could go on and on and on talking about the benefits that come because of the gospel. Now, friends, just bringing this to a close, my, my concluding thought is really, really simple. And it's repeating what we've already said. I want you to be convinced that ordinary Christians, armed with the simple gospel, can turn the world upside down. You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be a PhD. Most evangelism is not taking place in big, large crowds In fact, most of your testimonies would bear witness to that. Most evangelism takes place one-on-one, person-to-person, family-to-family, friend-to-friend. And what you need is an ordinary Christian who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, who knows the gospel, the simple gospel, and is willing to connect that to where the person is living and show them the wonderful beauty and majesty of the God of the Bible who sent his son Jesus Christ to die for them. Friends, you can do this. Do you believe that? You're like, I don't know that I can do this. See, Luke is wanting us to realize that we can. Now, we don't copy Paul, his every word, but we lean on the example. We understand that God is creator, We understand that he sustains. We understand that he orchestrates. But the same God has revealed himself. And this is what he says. May this be an encouragement to you, friends, to look at your day afresh, to see opportunities that God has created for you to open your mouth. Don't run for the exit. (laughs) Don't call me. Say, Pastor, can you come? God has given you the tool in your backpack so that you can be faithful to proclaim his gospel and leave the results to him. Lord, help us today as we consider the wonder and the beauty of the gospel. The wonder and the beauty of the fact, Lord, that that yes, you had disciples and yes, you talked to them. Yes, you showed them how you declared to them how you are present in this the, the Old Testament scriptures. And Lord, today we have so much more written for us to understand this gospel. We have the clarity, Lord, that we need. So Lord, help us today to be invigorated, Lord, to, to realize, the Lord, you don't just want to work through what we might consider to be experts. But you work through the ordinary Christian with the simple gospel. And as we do that, Lord, that we will turn the world upside down. Well, we won't, Lord. You will, by virtue of you working through us. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful privilege of being simple people with a simple gospel that has eternal consequences. Give us strength. Help us to be reinvigorated, Lord, to be able to do this. May we grow in our strength and ability, Lord, to accomplish these things. And, Lord, may our church... Be faithful to see those opportunities, to see how you're opening doors, how you're working providence, Lord, so that we can bring to bear who you are and what you have said. We ask this now in your precious holy name. Amen.